everyone. Welcome to Foster Source. Thank you for coming today. Today's class is how to better parent trans and gender fluid youth, how to best support them. We are thrilled to have Dr. Joseph Longo here as well as Kim Kelly. Thank you both for coming. They'll be sharing their screen and their PowerPoint. Um, please chat with us uh, as you would like in the chat and submit your questions in the Q&A. Um, Dr. Joe and, and Kim, I'm hoping we can just be super vulnerable and ask our questions and that you can extend us a little bit of grace as we learn to do better and be better. Thank you so much for having us. Um, I'm Kim Kelly and I am a clinical social worker uh, currently living in San Diego, but previously lived in Denver and worked at Denver Health with Joe. This is an area of um, great passion for me. I've been working with um, trans adults and gender fluid children um, for about the last four years now. Um, and so I really appreciate being able to share what we know. And of course, wanna create a space where we can have a discussion, talk about this, answer questions um, in a very non-shame based way. And I think that that's the best way um, to support our kiddos and youth uh, that are experiencing some of these transitions and exploration that we're gonna be talking about today. So please do feel free to ask us questions as we go along. Um, let's see, so some of our objectives that we will be um, going over, Joe, if you wanna to go to that screen. Well, actually, Joe, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, good morning. Um, I'm uh, really happy to be here as well. Thank you for inviting us. Uh, my name is Joe Longo, and um, I am a psychologist uh, by training and have uh, uh, worked with Kim and, and Devin at Denver Health in our integrated behavioral health department. Um, I work in uh, our HIV primary care clinic and in adult internal medicine and have been involved in our LGBT center of excellence um, as Denver Health really works to provide affirming care to uh, trans and, and gender nonconforming uh, patients. And so um, I'm really, again, honored to be here to, to have these discussions with you today. Perfect. Um, let's see. We have a question about is the presentation will be available? Yes, it is currently available under the handouts tab in the classroom. Uh, we will go ahead and link that right now so that if you would like to have two tabs open or just so you can see right now where it's at for later. Yeah, there should be the PowerPoint presentation and then two handouts on terminology um, that we'll get into. And Joe, do you mind going to the um, the bigger slide so I can see it, sorry. <laughs> can you see that? Um, I can see the first one, but it's not actually showing the slideshow. It just shows the lit, there we go. I don't know why it's not showing the full screen. But sorry, <laughs> be patient with us. <laughs> I mean, I can okay. still see it. Oh, okay. We can still see it very well. Okay. So if we need to keep seeing it that way, it's that works totally. Okay. 
There you go. Okay, thank you. Um, so some objectives for our training today um, would be to start increasing understanding of the impact of homophobia, heterosexism, transphobia um, on our LGB and TG chan, uh, gender fluid people, kids, youth. Um, also increase some personal awareness of assumptions and biases that may affect um, the caretaking process. So kind of looking internally at, at where we are um, in terms of what we think about a lot of these um, topics. And then also increase knowledge of ways to create an affirming environment. Um, so creating a safe space for having these discussions and conversations that can be really sensitive um, at any point in the transition process or coming out process. So we hope to do that today. Um, so we're going to start with a mindfulness um, activity called Imagining Trans. And this is just an activity of empathy building um, that kind of goes into potential interpersonal struggles that may occur um, for a youth that is either um, trans or gender fluid. And so if we could just ask everybody to um, kind of go inward right now and close your eyes if you're comfortable. If not, that's fine too. Um, but we're going to do some... Um, visualization. So I would like you to imagine with me an average day as a young person who is transgender around the age of seven years old. Please close your eyes and follow along if comfortable. If you currently identify as a woman, please imagine that everywhere you go, the people around you treat you as if you are a little boy. You are expected to act and dress like a boy Everyone refers to you using male pronouns and nicknames, he, him, his, little man, buster, champ, or son, even though you know in your heart and mind you are a girl. Everyone around you insists that you are a boy and demands you act accordingly. If you currently identify as a man, please imagine that everywhere you go, the people around you treat you as though you're a little girl. You are expected to act and dress like a girl Everyone refers to you using female pronouns and nicknames, she, her, sweetie, girly, or darling, even though you know in your heart and mind you are a boy. Everyone around you insists that you are a girl and demands you act accordingly. When you get out of bed in the morning, you survey your closet and you aren't happy with any of the clothing options that you see. These clothes make you feel really uncomfortable and upset when you wear them. Your parents tell you to hurry up and get dressed so you pick the clothes that you that are least uncomfortable. They make you feel more like yourself. When you get on the bus in the morning, some of the other kids tease you. They say mean things like, what are you gay or something? And why do you dress like that? Other kids ignore you. You feel isolated and alone. Once you get to school, you are asked to line up by gender and you consistently get yelled at for where you go. And the teacher yells, yells you to stop causing problems and to get in the correct line or they will call your parents. During recess, the other kids group together by activity, but you have a hard time choosing. When you do, when you do what you really want to do results in more teasing. You are sad, frustrated, and confused. Imagine now that you are 14. For the past few years, your body has been changing in ways that are profoundly uncomfortable. You are starting to have sexual feelings and fantasies, which are confusing because it feels good, but also uncomfortable. You have asked your close friends questions to see if they have similar feelings, but so far no one feels they've had a similar experience. At the same time, everyone else is suddenly interested in hooking up and dating and that feels overwhelming. 
sometimes you feel like you should just hook up and date people so you so that people stop harassing you about whether or not you are gay. And besides, you really want to be in a relationship, but things are so overwhelming. You know that you are attracted to one gender, but think you might also be attracted to another gender. Maybe all this discomfort is because you are gay. You seek out information online about being gay, but somehow it doesn't seem to fit. You found a transgender teen support forum and a lot of what you find there makes sense, but it is super scary. You wish that someone could understand where you are coming from, explain why you feel this way and help you figure out how to make it stop feeling so bad. You can't talk to your parents about this. Over the years, you have noticed your parents saying little things here and there about how, how transgender people are freaks and how they would never let their kid do that. You're afraid of how they will react if you tell them and life is hard enough as it is. You don't want to risk their rejecting you because you just aren't sure that you will be able to handle it. Besides, you know that your parents are struggling for money and dealing with their aging grandparents and your siblings and you don't wanna to add to their burden when they are already so stressed out. Every day starts to feel like a battle and you are exhausted. You're feeling increasingly depressed and start looking for things to help make you feel better. You consider experimenting with drinking and drugs or maybe cutting anything that might help. You saw that it gets better videos online, but frankly, you just can't see how that could be possibly true for you. So take a moment now to reflect on how you're feeling and when you're ready, open your eyes. Um, and typically when we do this in person, we have a group discussion though, that if there are any thoughts or feelings that come up that you wanna share in the group, that's fine. If not, that's okay too. Um, but I do think this activity kind of sets the stage for us to start to think empathetically about the process that some of our children and youth are going through and kind of some of the thoughts and fears um, that come with getting to know your gender and sexual orientation and your body through the process of puberty and all these things that come up as, as kiddos start to change. And feel free to add in the chat if it's just, it feels, it feels heavy and heartbreaking to me. Yes. Thank you. Lonely, Thank you. isolated, quote unquote, weird, confusing and scary. Well, and I can imagine, especially that part, Kim, where you were saying you kind of start asking your friends, hey, you know, I'm kind of going through this and nobody is affirming or validating what you're going through, that must be even, even scarier then. Yep, and when we think about adolescent development, that stage of development is um, scanning your environment, scanning your friendship groups, figuring out where do I fit in. Fitting in for teens is everything. Um, and so when you don't find that space or that person that can even say, not even say, I, I know exactly how you're feeling, but just, wow, that has to be hard and hearing some sort of validation um, it is very isolating. Um, and so and when we have... think, go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, when we think about going through something as scary as this, and then think about a youth in foster care on top of that, our youth, our children from trauma are constantly scanning their environment mm -hmm. to assure their safety. Exactly. You yep. know, so this is, this is a lot. 
Yes, definitely thinking about it from the trauma lens and the trauma perspective of so many rejections along the way till they get to that point and the rejection of their biological family, just not even based on this process, um, definitely adds to the layer of um, courageousness that it takes to even start to have these conversations with yourself. Um, a lot of times when we work with children and youth, they're, they're scared to even think about it. Um, and so even providing a space in their own head about what is happening in my body or what is happening to me. Um, so then to share that out loud, it takes a lot. Sure. Um, and if you're going to cover this, just let, let me know, but I just want to go kind of back to basics here and talk about that. This has nothing to do with sexual orientation. We have so many slides on that. Okay, that good. Talk okay. About. Yes. <laughs> we have visuals and lots of, yes, lots of things to, to differentiate those two. Cause you're right. They're very different sexual orientation, gender identity, two different things. Thank you for, for those reflections. Um, we wanted to, to extend this conversation just a bit by um, um, focusing us on the term of affirming and, and affirmation. Um, uh, it, it perhaps is a word that we um, you know, want to be using, want to be embodying in regard to affirming um, identity. But what does that really mean? And so we offer a definition um, that I'm just gonna read here. The unequivocal support for a person's identity or expression that ensures that communities are included, valued and honored. And I want to sort of draw some distinction between this idea of affirmation and other words that, um, that are used around this like tolerance how affirmation is, is truly an, an active um, support for a person's identity, which is even more than a term like acceptance. Um, so uh, one more time, the unequivocal support for a person's identity or expression that ensures that communities are included, valued, and honored uh, indicates that there's a call to action in this idea of being affirming. So there's a big difference between tolerating Mm -hmm. and affirming yes exactly yeah or even, even accepting like you said yeah. even accepting yeah. okay and i think the yeah to to highlight that difference between acceptance and affirmation is um, taking steps to um bring value and, and equity to, uh, to um, marginalized or oppressed populations. So moving into um, some terminology. Um, so sexual orientation is the definition, one's typical patterns of sexual and affectional attractions. Um, and so we kind of broke it into four categories here. So gay or lesbian, same sex, sexual and or affectional orientation. Um, bisexual, attracted to both sexes. Asexual, somebody who doesn't necessarily experience a lot of sexual attraction, though still may have a romantic relationship. Um, pansexual is sexual or affectional attraction to people across the gender spectrum. And so it's not binary, um, people that have romantic or sexual feelings for anybody, not based on any sort of gender identity. 
Um, and sexual orientation, again, as, as we kind of speak through this, is very fluid. Um, and particularly when we think about kind of experimenting as a child or, or somebody in their adolescence, um, this is not fixed. It's something that um, can change. And our sexual attraction or romantic attraction can maybe be fluid as well. Um, and so we just offer this as kind of four different categories um, of most typical sexual orientation that, that we work with. So then gender, um, different from sexual orientation, our gender identity, um, sex assigned at birth is the term that we use. Um, and so the classification of the time at birth as male, female, or intersex, or another sex based on physical anatomy. So your sex assigned at birth is what the doctor puts on that birth certificate. Um, biological sex is the combination of genitals, chromosomes, hormones categorized as male or female. Um, Gender expression is how we express our gender identity through our clothing, hair, voice, um, and it may not correspond necessarily to one's gender identity. Um, and so if I'm a teen and I identify as a trans male, um, and so my sex assigned at birth is female, I identify as a trans male, but my gender expression might be different than that because it's not safe for me to dress as a male, as a more stereotypical male. And so although my gender identity is male, my gender expression might be androgynous or it might be um, more stereotypically female because of the spaces that I'm in might not um, allow for any acceptance or even tolerance of, of my gender expression. Um, and then your gender identity is one's internal sense of being male, female, or another gender non-binary fluid. Can you talk um, a little bit more about the, we're getting some questions about fluidity. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so fluidity, um, I think of fluidity as really affirming and accepting wherever the person's at on the spectrum, right? And so fluidity allows us to not be so putting people in boxes and allows for people to express and to um, identify wherever they are. And so when I meet with people, um, because we live in such a binary world of male, female, um, I like to have them tell me, how do you identify? What are your pronouns? Um, and so I'm not putting them in a box. Are you male or female? Fluidity creates space for wherever you are on the spectrum. And I think this visualization helps kind of understand fluidity. Um, and even if you're not, I, I agree with you. I think a lot, a lot of times it feels safer for people to be able to put someone in a box, mm -hmm. but regardless of where someone identifies on the spectrum, that doesn't mean they will stay at that point on the spectrum is how I am understanding it. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe, you know, I'm a 12 year old and I feel comfortable with my gender expression being more androgynous because I'm kind of trying things on, or maybe I want to cut my hair shorter and then I want to grow it out. And so then my gender expression is more stereotypically female. Um, our brains do like to put things into things we understand and contextualize them and things we understand. And so when our world looks so binary and somebody doesn't fit into that or they change, my brain goes, wait, but I thought that you were this. And then the person who you say that to is like, well, no, but I'm not now. And so fluidity creates space for, okay, so I'm gonna be fluid with you. Okay, we'll go with it. I'm gonna affirm you at whatever, whatever part of the spectrum that you're on. Um, and that's hard to understand. And I think it's really hard as parents or caregivers to understand because 
we do like to kind of have this box of like, okay, you're here now. Okay. I get you here, but now you're here. How do I get you there? Um, And so when we think about affirmation, we're really affirming the fluidity and the potential for change that this could change. Um, Though our gender identity, which we will talk about a little bit is typically research shows that we understand and know and own our gender identity around the age of three or four. Um, and so it's not like teenagers are waking up and thinking, oh my gosh, now I'm a, now I'm a girl or now I'm trans. Um, that is something that, that really kind of is fixed in development around the age of three or four for our gender identity. Okay. Um, so someone is saying, and I think this is so important. This is part, this is what affirmation is. He says, when I go to pick up meds from the pharmacy for my kiddo, I always use name at birth was XXX, but his name is OOO. I get people look at me weird, but I really feel like I want to advocate for, you know, especially I would guess in places, medical practices, the pharmacy, they're going to use what the, the, the birth certificate gender or even schools. Yep. So we call it the dead name. So that name that um, was assigned at birth. And then when they change their name and have a name that they feel like actually represents who they are, that is the name that we want to advocate to use. And um, at Denver Health, we did it. We're still continuing to do a lot of work with making sure that the actual preferred name is on the, on, um, the paperwork that people are being addressed in that way, because all of those little kind of jabs that people get of misidentifying gender and name add up. Um, and they're like little like razors just cutting. And so that, that does add up. And so that's beautiful that you advocate and say, nope, this is, this is his name and this is who he is. And that is affirmation, right? It's taking that action step that Joe was talking about in terms of, it's not just accepting that's who he is. You're affirming him by saying, this is who he is and this is his name. And I know you have something different on your paperwork, but this is who he is. Um, and then hopefully we'll get to the point in Colorado where changing your name, changing your gender marker is a little bit easier now in terms of driver's licenses, but changing your name is still not a uh, process that is easy at all. Um, and so hopefully we'll get to the point where it is, but that advocacy, that affirmation um, is great. Yeah, I, I echo that, that so many of our institutions are, are set up in this very binary way, including our medical system, including our school systems. And so the, uh, the this example of advocacy really is an important one because that does lead to change. And, uh, uh, and as Kim was mentioning, and for example, in Denver Health, that has led to us really prioritizing the name that a person likes to use rather than their legal name um, throughout the course of their care. Um, and, uh, and that seems really relevant to the school system as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah, so this is um, just a different way of uh, looking at kind of the same terms that we were talking about. So, um, and then going into more into fluidity. So gender identity is how a person defines, understands and experiences one's own gender. Um, and that process starts again around the age of three or four. Um, gender fluid is a person whose gender expression is perceived as being inconsistent with cultural norms expected for that gender. So again, fluidity really is kind of trying to break the mold of what we expect in terms of how a boy dresses, how a girl dresses. And we all know that happens so young, right? Gender reveal parties. I mean, this is something that is um, almost innate to our 
kind of being. Um, and so that I think is why fluidity is difficult sometimes for, for people to understand. Um, transgender refers to people whose sex assigned at birth is different from their current gender identity. Um, and then cisgender refers to people whose sex assigned at birth is the same as current gender identity. So I identify as a cisgender female, my sex assigned at birth is female, um, and my current gender identity is female. And then just kind of another visualization. So sex assigned at birth, binary, male, female, and then intersex, gender identity, man, woman, non-binary, gender expression, masculine, feminine, androgynous, and then sexual orientation, again, a totally separate, separate column there. So sexual orientation does not equal gender identity, um, which I think is a really important thing to think about, especially when we um, are having discussions with, with children and youth that are starting to explore their sexuality, um, that it does not equal gender identity. And so when potentially a trans male, sex assigned to birth female identifies a trans male and they say that they're gay, they're interested in men, um, working with them, I'm like, okay, that's great. Like there's no prescription to your gender identity equaling who you're romantically attracted to or sexually attracted to. And thinking a bit about identity in, in general, so gender identity, sexual orientation can be a part of someone's identity. These identities are defined by the person them, themselves. So it's not something that, a label that we can put on to, to someone else. The person owns that identity. And, um, and so it, if we're, uh, so, Understanding how one person identifies is 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 them, not us to put onto them. Oh, I think we did. We went through that one, Joe. There we go. Um, so a little note about language, um, and there is a handout on this as well that that is even has more terms. Um, and this is always changing, right? As as these words continue to um, evolve and are used typically to um, oppress certain populations. Um, we talk about not using words like hermaphrodite, homosexual, sexual preference, um, transgendered, a transgender, tranny, transsexual. Um, FTM is, it, the FTM and F MTF are really used more medically. Um, we're not using those in medical documentation anymore. And then sex change. Um, so words that we recommend using instead, intersex, bigender, um, gay, lesbian, men sex with men, women sex with women, same gender loving as SGL, sex orientation, transgender, trans, transgender woman, transgender man, gender affirmation surgery and medical transition. Um, and thinking about children and youth, I, we probably need like a whole nother slide because I don't, they, those words change every day. <laughs> I feel like anytime I work with a child or youth, they're like, no, we don't use that anymore. I'm like, okay, tell me what we use. Um, and so this does go back to thinking about the person, right? As Joe said, and how they identify and what language they prefer. Um, and so I usually go with that, but with children and youth, we, we would change this presentation every single day. <laughs> they're so quick. Um, but this is kind of in general right now, um, what we recommend using in terms of language. Maybe we can pause there if there's any questions. We know that we um, gave a lot of 
definitions and um, sort of complex um, um, topics. So any questions at this point? Yeah, someone says, how do you advocate for a youth that identifies non-binary in school so that they feel affirmed? That's a great question. Um, my recommendation from kind of a mental health standpoint is to make sure they have safe spaces and safe people um, and really helping them figure out what that looks like for them. And so are they um, comfortable with expressing themselves in at school or not, um, right? And you can affirm them in the home, maybe if they're more comfortable expressing themselves dressing a certain way at home and then they change for school. I have a lot of youth that do that, um, but really kind of taking their lead on what that looks like and then advocating for them in terms of, oh, is this somebody, a teacher at school that you feel comfortable with? Do you want me to have that discussion with them? Do you want to do that by yourself? Um, and really kind of letting them know that you're there for any part of that process. And maybe they do talk to that teacher and it doesn't go well. Okay, tell me how that conversation went, check back in. Um, and offering to be a support person right along with them or when they get back from school and what, what they feel most comfortable with, I think would be my recommendation. Joe, I don't know if you have thoughts on that too. I, I echo that in many ways, um, or all of that. I think um, one of the things that is important is understanding um, uh, what, uh, when it's, when the, what the privacy is around this. So giving some power and control to the child to determine who knows. So just as Kim was saying, you know, is this something that the, that the child would feel comfortable for the teacher to know? Um, are there pronouns that the, the, um, the child would like to use at school and how can we work with the teacher in the school to use those pronouns? Or, or is it not safe to do that at school at this point? Um, so I think giving some some choice around uh, this um, for the for the child can also be really important. And can I, you, go ahead. Later on, we'll talk a little bit about um, uh, giving children the opportunity to engage in, in things that are reflective of their identity, um, including uh, play, dress, things like that. That um, maybe an opportunity for for the child to understand their identity, that we have so many prescriptions around what boys should play with and what girls should play with and, and dress and hair length and all those things that can feel really restricting and um, uh, create a lot of stress for children. So uh, allowing opportunity to engage in, in play that is consistent with what their interest is and not shaming those interests that may be different, I think is also really important. Awesome. Um, can you talk about the term transgendered? Why, why is that not affirming? Is it because it's not specific to the sexual identi identity of that person? Yeah, great question. So similar to words like alcoholic or um, things that that really take away from the person being a person first right so when we say a transgendered we're saying like oh you're a transgendered you're not a human first <laughs> we're, we're creating an identity for somebody an alcoholic oh you're just an alcoholic you're not a human with a substance use disorder 
Um, and so it takes away kind of the, we call it people first language. So people first language means, oh, okay, you identify as trans, not a transgendered, um, which creates this identity for a person that's very limiting. Um, and so when we think of people first language, we think of, okay, you're a person who is trans. So we're really identifying them as a human first. And when we can identify people as humans first, it really takes away some of the stigma, some of the shame, some of the, um, the identities that get thrown onto people. That kind of language tends to create more um, judgment too. That, um, yes. She says, thank you. That makes perfect sense. And I think in, in child welfare, we, we have similar um, practices. We are starting to now not use the term foster child, foster yep. kid. We use a child in foster care yep. um, because that's not their identity. Um, someone says, I'm wondering about gender identity being formed in early childhood. If gender identity is gender fluid around five, would it be likely that their identity would remain fluid for a long time? Does it fluidly move into transgender or cisgender later? That's a really good question. Yeah. So, um, and the video that we show will really highlight that process. And so typically around the ages of three or four, um, you really start to think about how you identify your gender. And if that is different from your sex assigned at birth, that's where some of like the questioning comes in, right? So that's where maybe some of the experimentation comes in. Um, for me, identified as a cisgender female, I don't really remember that process. I just kind of played with things that were stereotypically female. I didn't really have a whole lot of thoughts around it. For our patients, um, for my patients that, that are trans, um, they have a very different experience. They felt discomfort in the kind of prescribed gender things that were around them. Um, and so I think it's hard to explain for myself, because I'm a cisgender person, what that actually feels like and looks like. Um, and the video will, will give an example of this, which I think will, will clarify it. But yeah, so that kind of thought process happens for kiddos um, that are trans because they don't fit into how their sex assigned at birth and how everybody is treating them. And it starts to create some, some wonderings. And that process can be, I mean, there are some adults that are like, oh yeah, I really did start thinking about that in childhood, but there wasn't a space for me to ever come out. And so I've been trans, I'm 55, I've been trans since I was younger, but I didn't know even what trans was. I didn't have the language to know what those feelings were. If you're transgender, so, and excuse my ignorance on this, if you're transgender, does, does that mean you are working towards a gender affirmation surgery? Or not, not necessarily. necessarily. Okay. No. Uh. Uh. Yep. That's a good question. Yeah. So you might identify as a trans male, right? Sex assigned at birth female, and you your gender expression is very stereotypically male, and you don't want to have um, the surgical, you know, the surgical intervention that would then change your anatomy. Um, you can, or maybe you just want to take hormones, and so you have a more um, stereotypical male gender expression. So you can have facial hair, so that. Um, so that that process can happen. So there's many options that okay. trans folks have to start to affirm how they feel. And sometimes that can include medical transition and sometimes it's just social transition, okay. meaning changing your clothes, changing your gender presentation. Let's do one more question before we move on. Uh, as a professional, how do you feel is a good way to approach a healthcare professional 
when I, as the foster parent, have so many questions about how the transition works. This is a foster parent currently fostering a trans child. When the child doesn't allow the foster parent to be part of the appointments because they're old enough, so they don't have to have the foster parent in with them, he says, I'm scared as I'm not involved and I'm afraid I'm not going to be prepared for the reactions with what's going to happen when hormones start or even what to expect. That's a great question. Depending on where you're getting your healthcare, um, the True Center, the Children's True Center, their website, and we have a lot of resources in our PowerPoint as well, has tons of information on what to expect with hormones, puberty blockers, um, all of those things. And so it would be wonderful if you could talk to the doctor, but if you can't, doing your own research um, can be helpful. And then asking the kiddo too of like, oh, what did you learn? I know sometimes teens have a hard time sharing. Um, and so if you are working with somebody that's a little bit more reserved and, and, and doesn't necessarily want to share, there's so many resources on the internet now that are great to learn exactly those things, what to expect when they start hormones, side effects, all those things. And um, like I said, there are several resources in our PowerPoint that, that can help with just that. Super. Thank you. Um, so pronouns, talking about how we um, can ask about what a person's pronouns are. Just what pronouns do you use? <laughs> what are your pronouns? It doesn't have to be a big discussion. It can just be, what are your pronouns? And if the person looks at you weird and they're like, she, her, hers, you're like, okay, great. And moving on. So it doesn't need to be this whole scary discussion. Um, they, then, there is uh, pronouns that typically um, non-binary people use people that are non-binary use um, because it doesn't fit in the she or the her. So that they then there's, I think the hardest for people because our brains think of that as plural, um, but it's not. And as Kim mentioned before, the this is really important um, to, to honor the pronouns that a person uses. And um, it can be, sort of death by a thousand cuts um, sometimes when a person goes throughout their day, just as, as Kim um, shared in the imagining trans activity in the beginning, that repeated experiences of, of um, misused pronouns can, can feel very oppressive and um, it can be very discouraging um, and distressing. So it, it may seem like a, a a small thing, but it is such a huge, important thing. Yeah, so they do matter. It can really be um, a huge point of affirmation to affirm people's pronouns just by asking, um, just giving them the space to identify uh, who they are and what they, how they identify their pronouns. Um, so they, the most common gender neutral pronoun often used by non-binary transgender people. Um, as you had said before, and the two, um, they're not linked on here, but those two websites have great information on pronouns and a little bit more of how to talk to family members about pronouns. If um, you come from a, an environment or family space on that, they're like, I don't get this. I get a lot of that sometimes from um, parents of like, I don't get the they. Um, and so, and it's not really for us to understand, right? If somebody identifies as they, them, there. I don't really have to get it. I can just acknowledge and affirm that, okay, they've been there. Can you recommend what should we should say or do when we accidentally use the wrong pronoun? Great transition, yes. 
Um, mistakes happen. We're human. I have definitely made mistakes in, in working with people that identify as trans or non-binary. Um, you apologize, correct yourself and move on. So don't make it about the mistake that, oh my gosh, I feel so bad. I'm so sorry. That really puts the other person at the, um, in the position of having to affirm you. No, it's okay. It's okay. We don't want to do that. Um, we just apologize, correct, and move on. Um, and so the isolated pronoun mistake that can be upsetting, but the accumulation of being misgendered is, is the hardest part. Um, and so not putting it on the person to make you feel better that you made the mistake, just apologizing and then move on and use the correct one next time. One of our foster parents says, in our house, we learn, as we learn the new aspects of language, we try to emulate Brene Brown saying, I'm here to get it right, not to be right. Yes. Learn the language, but always be flexible and open to correction. It's okay to be wrong, not to stay wrong. Yes, I love that. Yep, definitely. Um, so we're going to transition into watching a video now, Raising Ryland. Um, and so this is a kiddo that is a trans male uh, who is assigned female at birth um, and just kind of watching the perspective from the parents um, on what it was like to raise um, a trans male. And so hopefully the sound and visual and everything will work. I'm going to try to share on my, okay. on my end here. Fingers crossed. Can everyone see it? Can you guys see and hear it? I can see it. I can't hear it. Hmm. Renee, when you do share screen, there's usually like a share computer audio that might help. Okay, let me stop for a minute. Lindsay, can you try on your end as well, please? Joe, do you want to try? Renee. Yes. When you click um, share screen and you know it pops up with all the different screens you can share, mm -hmm. at the bottom is a button or a box and it says share computer sound before you hit the blue share button. All right, let me try that again. There it is. All right, guys, I'm gonna try it again. This month, New York City enacted rules allowing transgender people to use the bathroom of their choice in city facilities. Similar laws are being debated around the country as the transgender movement pushes for greater protection. And while the transgender community is finding a growing voice in popular culture, its members are still widely misunderstood. A new book, Raising Ryland, chronicles one family's journey parenting a transgender child who's already facing a major hurdle. John Blackstone shows us how the family hopes its story will raise awareness. 
Not long after her first birthday, Ryland Whittington's parents, Jeff and Hillary, learned their child was profoundly deaf. It wasn't until doctors put in cochlear implants that Ryland was able to hear for the first time. You hear that? For a while there, we didn't know Ryland would be able to talk or hear or just communicate. Ryland did learn to speak, but what she had to say didn't make sense to her family. This is my sister, Vinny, and I Ryland. Ryland started saying, I'm a boy. And at the time, we just thought it was cute. It was a phase. I thought maybe I would have a, a tomboy. It was around three that we started to hear it, but around four years old was when it got very strong. Jeff and Hillary struggled to understand, Jeff especially. You were trying to avoid it? I was avoiding for a while. I knew that Ryland was going to have a difficult life with the cochlear implants, or at least that's what my perception was. So to add something on top of that, I just couldn't, I couldn't accept it. I couldn't picture it. I'm sure what a lot of people can't believe about your story is that at three years old, a little girl can say, I'm a little boy. We could have ignored it and we could have pushed it away and and said, no, you're a girl and, and fought it. Well, we did. And we did. <laughs> For the first but, part. But. It, but it became so persistent. They say Ryland demonstrated the key markers that doctors and psychologists look for in determining if a child is transgender. At the time, like so many people, Jeff and Hillary didn't get what it meant to be transgender. Now they do. Watch the ball. This is eight-year-old Ryland today. Over the fence. After much research, counseling, and soul-searching, Jeff and Hillary say they came to the inescapable conclusion that Ryland's gender identity did not match the sex on her birth certificate. So at age five, Ryland began living as a boy. When you, when you see pictures of yourself when you were three and four years old, does that seem strange now? Kind of. A little weird. Seems a little weird? Yeah. Ryland remembers how he refused to wear clothes made for girls. It was a little way of showing my mom and dad that I was a boy. What makes you so strong, so determined? I just had a weird feeling that I wanted to be a boy. From the time you were very young? Yeah. This is just as likely to be hardwired as sexual orientation. It's not a choice. Dr. Steven Rosenthal is researching the long-term outcomes of medical treatment for transgender youth in a study funded by the National Institutes of Health. There is no reason to believe that transgender people haven't been around since people have been around, just like uh, any other variation in, in human biology. Rosenthal says treatment is crucial because an alarming 41% of transgender people attempt suicide. But new research in the journal Pediatrics found that children who have socially transitioned to the gender with which they identify had normal levels of depression and anxiety. We have seen so many kids who have come into our practice, like Ryland, um, who have fully socially transitioned. And family after family tells us that as soon as they enable their kid to do this, everything turned around. When you were researching and seeing that attempted suicide rate, 41%, 41%. what was that? Awful. It was horrible. Awful. You know, would we rather have a living son or a dead daughter? And, you know, we weren't willing to play with that statistic. We'd rather have a living son. What are you guys doing? We're making a cake. I'm not kidding when I say that the child changed overnight. Mm -hmm. um, it was just, he was so proud all of a sudden and just so happy and just felt so comfortable. And you could just see him ease up. 
There's people who blame you, say you did this to him. It would never be something that I would push on my child. In certain ways, it is and will make Ryland's life a little bit harder. And I don't want my child's life to be any harder. There are decisions ahead, including whether to eventually give Ryland male hormones. It's a little while before puberty sets in now, but you've got to be thinking about that. You know, thankfully, there's puberty blockers, which allow us to delay the onset of puberty for a period of time. I think it is really important to note that, that we haven't done anything that isn't reversible. Jeff and Hillary are sharing their story because they want Ryland to live in a world we'll get, we'll that accepts him. Hey, Dada. What? Know how you made that tunnel? Hopefully we just plant the seed of little conversations all over the world. People can just start understanding this more. And there's so many more people who are willing to go public with it and who are coming out and trying to help this world to understand. So I think I mean, we'll get there. We'll get there. For CBS This Morning, John Blackstone, San Diego. They seem like a very nice family. They don't deserve blame. They deserve applause. Jeff and Hillary, just the fact that we're having the conversation mm -hmm. is so important. I agree. What do you think, Charlie? I think it's very important, and I think people need to know they're not alone. Me too. Me too. Bravo. Thanks. Glad that worked. <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit more about social transition and puberty blockers as well. a little bit about gender development. Um, so gender identity is, is truly complex, but as we've talked about before and heard in the video, um, there's a strong biological component and um, it, it's not a choice. Um, it is something that uh, uh, people are born with. And so but we can acknowledge that there's um, a variety of impacting factors, including in addition to biology, including the environment, socialization and culture, um, the ways that our, our culture really sees the binary and from the very beginning, um, uh, from gender reveal parties, even before the child is born, how gender is such a sort of organizing um, part of culture and also then creates very fixed categories um, that, that people may not fit into. So around preschool, um, children are gaining deeper understanding of gender, um, noticing both physical and social differences and, and also um, gaining an understanding that gender is something that um, is persistent. Um, and so thoughts, uh, feelings and play are an important way of exploring gender. Um, so allowing play, uh, allowing a, a number of different toys or types of toys um, to be used, following the interest of the child um, uh, is, is really important. Play is such a, a primary way of experiencing the world for, for children. And variation in play is common, um, that there may be um, truly cisgender boys that are interested in playing with stereotypically feminine uh, um, girl toys and, and vice versa. And that may not be an indication of a, a trans identity, 
Um, I think it more represents the rigidity that we oftentimes have or set for our children and, and sort of putting them into boxes of what they should and should not be playing with. So variations in play is common. Um, at the same time, gender diverse children know their genders clearly as cisgender children. Um, and all kids need to, to feel um, accepted, supported, and loved. Um, there's no evidence that um, parenting or childhood trauma um, changes gender identity, and that, that um, can be a, a, a common question that, that comes up. Thinking a little bit about health disparities, um, uh, we want to share about some of the the um, associated risks. And this, um, the data that we're going to share comes from a really large sample of um, trans identified and gender non-conforming participants, tens of thousands of participants from all over the all over the country and uh, US territories. Um, and this, this particular survey is um, done um, every so often, um, every few years. Um, there's a, a, a few of the, this particular organization has done a few of these surveys. Um, and um, I think one of the striking things for us as we're looking at the survey is that um, many of the percentages that we're going to share with you have persisted. And I, I think it's a reminder to all of us of the work that we need to do in this uh, particular area in, in our country. Um, so health disparities for LGBT youth um, uh, are more likely to be homeless. 19% of the respondents in this really large survey reported some experiences of homelessness at some point in their lives because of their um, and, you know, we can think about how this is complicated by familial rejection, discrimination. Um, if we think about what are the resources for homeless LGBT youth, and we consider shelters, um, what are the complications in, in shelters? Shelters tend to be very binary in, in how they're established, and so it can also be a source of, of, um, of discrimination or even violence. Um, there's twice the rate of unemployment uh, than the general population. Um, had a number of, of patients talk about their experiences and their, their employment and discrimination can come from, from the system level policies of, of an organization to experience interpersonal experiences with managers and colleagues um, to the point that people maybe even um, have to leave the job because it's intolerable or um, are let go from the job as a result of discrimination. Um, there's additional health-related concerns related to STIs and HIV. Um, communities of uh, trans communities of color are at much higher rate of HIV um, infection. Um, and just in general, our healthcare system has um, uh, also has stigmatized um, trans uh, patients um, and even mistreated in various ways. And so, including the mental health system, you know, mental health 
has historically assigned pathology or disorder. Um, and that is really impacting, that communicates a message. So as our healthcare organizations and mental health court, mental healthcare organizations, um, it's really a charge on us to become more affirming and responsive. This is a really staggering statistic um, here at at the bottom avoidance and distrust of healthcare systems and providers, 23% of respondents not seeing a doctor when they need to as a result of the fear of being mistreated. Um, as was referred to in the, the video of Ryland, um, suicide risk is, is a true risk. 40% of respondents reported attempting suicide. And this isn't suicidal thoughts or suicidal thinking. Um, this is, a suicide attempt, an intent to end one's life. And um, we can see that as compared to less than 5% of the general population. Um, and I think what uh, Ryland's uh, um, parent mentioned in the video about rather have a, um, a live son than um, a, a dead daughter, that there's truth to that, that this is, is is truly a risk, um, uh, but we we also want to indicate that there are things that really ameliorate or that that mitigate this risk. And one of the most powerful things that help with this is a, is support um, coming from a, a supportive family um, helps to to mitigate the these uh, difficult experiences that, that children have. Um, we do have a graph here on the bottom part of this slide. It's a little bit difficult um, to, to read, um, but the middle uh, bar graph there um, says attempted suicide and has percentages. Um, the, the top line is um, uh, respondents who reported having a supportive family, the darker blue line and the lighter blue line are um, respondents who um, had unsupportive support, unsupportive uh, systems around them. And we can see a difference of how support impacts um, um, lots of different things, but including uh, suicide. And family doesn't necessarily mean biological family. That can be a family system of any kind. Um, if we look at kind of health disparities and thinking about the amount of stigma and discrimination that, that occurs, unfortunately, um, we can kind of start to understand how, um, just how isolating it can be for, for youth. And so 80% of trans students feel unsafe at school because of their gender expression. Um, so these are youth that maybe have um, come out at school or they haven't because of the lack of safety that they feel. Um, and then compared to cisgender students, transgender and questioning students are more likely to be bullied, um, less likely to feel safe at school, more likely to miss school because they feel unsafe. Um, I, I don't know, and I don't think we will know in terms of research of what online learning is going to do for this, if it's helped um, make people feel safer in their home um, and accessing school in that way or not. Um, and then also kiddos are one and a half less likely to have an adult um, to go to to help with a serious problem um, or less likely to have a parent help them with that process. Um, and so I think that also, again, speaks to the importance of, of the role that you all play 
um, in the lives of these youth as being that person, uh, however that looks, and then being their advocate at school again, however that looks for them in terms of feeling safe in that process. There's a, one piece of school that, that we haven't mentioned that can be tremendously stressful is, is bathroom use bathroom. at school. Um, and so I was thinking about areas of advocating for children at school is, um, first of all, on a system level, having more um, gender neutral um, restrooms and um, perhaps if it's not a system level change, what, what can the school, how can we work with the school to have a safe place for bathroom use at school? Is that currently something that each school gets to decide or where are we on that right now? Yeah, there's no legislation in the state of Colorado um, that, that you have to have bathrooms be gender neutral. Um, there's some states like the video referenced North Carolina that's making it so that you don't have to have gender neutral bathrooms, which is going the opposite direction. Um, but there are schools I know in Denver public schools that have taken it upon themselves to create gender neutral bathrooms. I know Denver Health, we're working on it, but we don't even have all gender neutral bathrooms, which is not okay. Um, and no, there's no one that's saying that you have to do this, but school systems are starting to take it up upon themselves to do that. Um, thinking about the imagining trans activity um, towards the end when they talked about how to start to cope with some of these feelings of isolation and depression, a lot of kids turn to alcohol use, substance use, um, because it helps them numb, it helps them feel better. They can disconnect from all of those overwhelming feelings. Um, and so kiddos that identify as trans are more likely, 30% more likely, um, or for, sorry, 43% more likely to use alcohol in the last 30 days. That's a stat for, for a month's time. Um, and just more likely to use substances in general over a lifetime. Um, and then mental health issues, as Joe talked about, um, and thinking about kiddos that are in foster care, oftentimes they have to see a mental health professional. And sadly, not all mental health professionals are gonna provide the space that is affirming. Um, it's really unfortunate. And so if the kiddo does come home and say like, my therapist doesn't get it, um, that could be true. And so really listening to that and trying to advocate for them to find a therapist that is going to provide the space for them to, to get better um, because it's not gonna help them to meet with a therapist that that doesn't provide an affirming space. Um, and it's so important because we do know that kiddos that identify as trans or um, gender fluid have higher rates of depression, anxiety, um, suicidal ideation, and then attempts as we saw. I think in our practice, we, we've also seen people who have had really traumatic experiences in therapy up to the point of you know, as a, as a young person being put into conversion um, therapies. And, um, and, and that can, again, be very traumatic. Um, and now we've at least seen some, some change in this area that, uh, you know, the American Psychological Association, Psychiatric Association condemns um, things like conversion therapy. And there's even been state level um, legislation to help restrict um, conversion practices. Can we stop just for a second for a few more questions? Um, someone's asking uh, regarding the schools, is it a district policy or per school? Per school. 
As far okay. as I'm aware, Denver Public Schools, I haven't worked in the schools in a while, but when I was there, it wasn't a district policy, it was by school. Hopefully that has changed, but I'm, I can't speak to DPS. Um, okay. But when I was there, it was not a district policy. So someone said it took a solid year for my kids' elementary school to put up an all-gender bathroom sign with me badgering them constantly. Sadly, I believe that and good for you. That is amazing um, to do that work. And unfortunately, these systems take way too long to change. Um, and so, I mean, hopefully as the discussion changes too, they'll, they'll have more trainings for administration to know the risk that we're causing these kiddos by just, I mean, it's such a simple thing to have a gender neutral bathroom and the benefit mm -hmm. of a kid feeling affirmed is that they don't end up wanting to kill themselves. I mean, that's the risk benefit here. Um, and so I, I wish school districts would know these statistics and know I mean, it's so simple, right? To just take away the stupid male female sign. Mm. Um, and that, that simple act can be so affirming for, for a kiddo. So thank you for advocating for your kid because that, I mean, that's huge for them and sad that it took the school that long. And I'm, I'm sadly not surprised. Let me squeeze this one more question in. And I apologize that we are bouncing around a little bit. I just really want to get everyone's questions answered if possible. Oh. We have a limited time with you guys. Um, Someone says, do young children feel gender fluidity or is it that identity tends to be identified more around puberty? Experimentation versus gender fluidity is confusing to me. That's, I was literally just thinking that. So if we think of fluidity as exploration, right? So a gender identity is, is typically developed around three or four. That doesn't necessarily mean you, you know that. Right. And so there's some exploration that happens. If you think about that, imagining trans, um, they, they were trying to figure it out. Like, what is this? I feel different. I don't know what that means. Um, and so then maybe you do start to kind of experiment or explore um, with different expressions, different gender expression or presentations. Um, and so that's, I think, where kind of exploration fluidity are similar. Right. So fluidity, meaning I'm just kind of trying this on. It's not a choice. I, I Internally, I know this, but I might not actually know it or the words to share it yet. Um, I don't know if that helps. Okay. So have... Okay. Um, one more on the schools, if you don't mind. Um, it seems our child's school doesn't want to protect her from bullying, and it seems like it's because she's a transgender female. Her classmates do not know, but the administration does. Any suggestions? Or is there an advocacy group that this foster parent could contact, or what would be the best next steps? That's a really good question. Um, I tend to go with the... Um, the parent liaisons first for those sorts of things in the school district. Um, depending on the school district, those can be more helpful than others. Um, I imagine there's gotta be, we could definitely look into like a legal resource. I imagine there must be in Denver for advocacy. Joe? I, I think there is a GLBT legal resource um, that, that may be something to to access okay we'll follow up on that after and yeah. and get the information out i think another organization that might be useful i, I don't know that it completely answers this question but pflag is an incredible yeah. incredibly useful organization for parents to to connect with other parents who may be having similar struggles with the school system um, to problem solve amongst amongst that group as well could you type that in the chat kim 
that organization? Yep. Yeah, PFLAG is great. I think the other school, um, really helpful thing that can happen at school, um, especially in our high schools is um, queer alliances or um, some schools call them gay straight alliances. Um, the presence, whether a student is involved in, in that group or not, the presence of that type of group in school really can um, provide a lot of relief and, and support for, uh, for students. So looking into whether school has that offered is helpful. And oftentimes in those groups, there may be teachers or other faculty who um, identify um, on, on these spectrums that we're talking about and having that um, mentorship or even just some, some important person in the person's life um, or, or role model in the person's life can, can make a lot of difference. forward into you, discussing a bit of coming out. Um, so coming out, this is a, a significant and, and not an easy decision. Um, and it may, uh, as we've been talking about, sometimes there, oftentimes there is a process of one, of oneself understanding one's identity and um, coming out, sometimes we refer to this as coming out to oneself. Um, and uh, as that happens, and someone may then decide to come out to other people, it's, it's indeed can be a risk. And we've seen some of the risks wore out in the statistics that we mentioned earlier, the, the rates of homelessness, the familiar rejection is is a, a really scary thing and um, has, of course, huge consequences for, especially for young people. And so um, it, it certainly can be a sign of trust if um, a child, a person comes out. Um, there, these are some sort of do's and don'ts with the actual disclosure of coming out. Um, so allowing the person to share what they want to share without pressure. Um, sometimes it can lead to a lot of like invasive questions that the person may not be ready to answer or want to answer. Um, and knowing that this is, is their process, not, it's, not about, it's not about the person receiving the news, it's about the person sharing the news. Um, so validating and, and really being clear about one's support of the person offering that support directly. What do you need right now? How can I support you? Um, respecting privacy and clarifying um, based on the age of the person coming out, um, we, we will want to know how confidential this is. Is, is it okay if I you know, tell other people or is it, is it not? Who knows? Um, uh, so respecting the privacy of the person is really important. That tends to build up a lot of trust um, and give control to the person whose truth is they're sharing. Um, on the other hand, things not to do. Um, don't minimize the, the disclosure. Sometimes a well-intentioned person may say something like, it's not that big of a deal to me. Um, and... I, I think the sentiment behind that is 
you know, I'm, I'm going, I, I see you as, as you are. This doesn't change how I feel about you. Um, but that particular way of saying it does diminish the, um, the significance of the disclosure. Um, I mentioned this, it's, it's not about you, it's about the person coming out. Um, so sometimes things like, I knew all along, or, or why didn't you tell me sooner? This, is, this actually is one um, that comes up a lot. Um, sometimes people can feel a bit hurt that the person didn't come out sooner to them. And we have to recognize that there's lots of factors involved in coming out. And um, it, it, it's, not about, it's not about the person receiving the disclosure. It's not about you. It's, a, it's about the person coming out. Don't question it. Um, are you sure? Um, is this just a phase? Um, this is the, the truth of the person uh, right now, and um, there, there isn't a lot of benefit in, in questioning that. Um, that tends to be dismissive of the person. And um, don't express fears. Um, this is also something that I hear a lot in, in clinical work is um, uh, people talk a lot about the fears that were expressed to them when, when they first came out. Um, these may be things that parents are concerned about. Um, are people going to treat you differently? Um, um, concerns related to STIs or HIV. Um, uh, these may be things that are, are a parent is holding in their mind. Um, and it's and yet it's not so useful to um, to share those concerns. Um, can be helpful to to demonstrate support with the idea that if those concerns come up, if they come to be true, that I will help support you through those things. question about coming out. Is there any guidance on demonstrating allyship without it feeling like pressure to come out? Yeah, um, good question. So I think thinking about what language you're using, how you're talking about people that identify as trans um, or gender fluid just in other discussions um, and how you create space for openness to talk about anything that can be potentially shaming or scary to talk about will then support allyship. Um, and being an ally, again, thinking of affirming is, it's a, it's a intention, um, it doesn't just happen. And so without pressuring or saying like, you know, you can tell me anything, which I think is so well-intentioned, um, that caretakers do, um, it can create pressure. And so I think showing patience and showing that you will love them either way in other ways that they are sharing with you, you know, difficult things um, will then create that space and comfort without having to say like, you know, you can tell me anything or I already know, <laughs> which is hard to do sometimes because you want them to be able to be themselves. Um, and that needs to be on their timeline and, and that patience and that reserve for that will create su a, such a, a better process for them to be able to come to you when they're ready. Um, even though you're ready, they might not be. Thinking about all the kind of subtle ways that that heterosexism, heterosexism sort of seeps into to our, our daily life for all of us. And um, so there, 
there can be just simple things like Kim was referring to of um, how how we talk about maybe even people that are seen in the news or or people in our family who may be um, who identify along the spectrums we're, we're um, talking about today. Um, referring to, you know, I think can be like things like, um, do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a girlfriend? Those types of comments um, that can be really gendered and um, uh, have a kind of, have sort of a heterosexist um, uh, um, framework. And so there's, I think, very subtle ways of um, using language and responding to things that are coming up in the news or, or in one's life that demonstrates um, support for trans identities and um, variations in sexual orientation as well. Um, so this is kind of our, we're finishing up. Um, so supporting for transition. Um, the video about Rylan talked about social transition. So social transition is no risk, right? Um, it's a process of making others aware of gender identity and it, it can include telling people your gender identity, um, whether or not they're aware of your sex assigned at birth, that's not necessarily a part of it. Um, changing your name, use with social interactions, changing pronouns. Um, all of this social transition piece can be really validating um, for people. Um, as the dad referred to in the video, he noticed a difference immediately. And I hear that 100% of the time when I work with, um, with kiddos and youth and adults that, that identify as trans, as soon as they are able to feel validated in who they are and have their name and share their expression, with, with, which is how they identify, um, just validating that can be really powerful. Um, so supporting social transition can look different depending on um, what environment they feel safe in, right? Um, sadly, it's not safe to socially transition in all environments potentially, but just being respectful of where they want to social transition and what that looks like and exploring that maybe that just happens at home for now um, to create that safe space. Um, let's see, yeah, so yeah, again, social transition is one of the easiest to achieve. It's not medical transition, it's not legal transition. It can just be completed by the individual within their social group. Um, and it can be scary too, right? Uh, the risk of transphobic reaction ranging from intentional to, to um, misgendering to serious danger because it, it, it can put people at risk. Um, and those fears, um, like Joe was talking about when, when kiddos do come out or youth do come out as trans, not necessarily saying like, oh my God, I'm, I'm scared for your life, even though you, you could be, and that would be fair. Um, just supporting them with love and then kind of trying to take care of your fears with another adult or another support partner um, is important. And then the medical transition, Joe, on the next slide. So support for medical transition, puberty blocking medicines, um, medicines that suppress hormones, um, using puberty blockers can avoid body changes that don't align with identity. Um, so maybe slowing down uh, the puberty process can be helpful as well. And so the, you know, not developing breasts, if I identify as a trans male, developing breasts can be super awkward and uncomfortable. Um, and surgical intervention typically can't happen until after the age of 18. But things like puberty blockers and hormone therapy are offered at younger ages with parental consent or with caregiver consent. 
Um, and so important to talk to the doctors about um, if the practice does this or the true center, like I said, at Children's Hospital is a great resource. So their wait list is long. Um, Denver Health has several pediatricians now that are doing this work. Um, and so important to find a provider that is affirming to have these conversations with. Um, and then hormone therapy is during puberty. Um, if you've already reached reach past the point of puberty or during puberty, then you can start hormones um, that can produce secondary sex characteristics such as voice changing, breast development that align with gender identity. Um, and so maybe a trans female whose sex assigned at birth would be male, um, does want to develop breasts. And so estrogen can help that process. Um, and so just to leave you with kind of thinking about from our conversation today, um, things that you want to personally commit to, to provide support for gender diverse youth and children. Um, and that can be as simple as starting to have conversations with people in the home, with, with extended family, with, with systems that you know that these kiddos interact with and how, um, how you want to be, you know, affirming and an ally for them in, in those ways. It can just be conversation. It doesn't have to be this, a huge thing. Uh, but I think just even having this discussion today hopefully helped create some, some ideas for you all to continue to do this important work that you do. Well, I agree. And I think, you know, there, there are children coming into foster care that need foster parents who are affirming and who understand or can at least support what they're, what they're going through. Um, but there isn't a lot of of training for us on this. So that's why this is super important for, for us today. Um, when, when you're ready, we'll open it up to more, more questions. I think we're ready, right, Joe? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and there's some resources as well. Oh, super. And like we said, the, this presentation is already uploaded in the classroom on this class under the handouts tab. And the, the patient navigators um, down at the bottom right-hand corner there, those are patient navigators that work for our Center of Excellence at Denver Health. And so if you do have a kiddo that is wanting to learn more about puberty blockers, hormones, um, they can connect you with a pediatrician um, that, can, that can have those discussions. And so they'll connect you with a, a person that knows an affirming provider. So that's a great resource. And I would make, make a note about the, the transgender scenario, the Rockies and, and Rainbow Alley um, both have youth-oriented programs and um, have some group uh, services as well as just like social um, gathering. And so as we think about how isolation can be, how, how these experiences can be so isolating, these are some options to help connect youth together, um, which can be really helpful. So I'm going back to the legal question. So on the Transgender Center of the Rockies website, they do have a tab um, that's legal resources. I, I don't know that if they have anything specific to schools, but they do have a lot of legal resources on there. Um, so checking out that website could be a good place to start. Thank you all for having us. Guys, raise your hand if, if after this class, you feel more confident in being able to foster a trans or gender fluid youth. Awesome. Yeah, this is super, super helpful.
I personally appreciated just you stating, you know, don't be scared to ask someone what their preferred pronouns are. Um, for me, that is a big struggle. I have the world's worst fear of accidentally offending somebody and being oblivious to it. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully the more people ask them, the more people feel comfortable doing it. Someone says, it seems like these tips slash tricks slash info translates well to sexual orientation and even racial identities. Would you agree? Yeah, I think if we just think about affirming human beings as who they are in general, this can apply to all of that um, and really being present to however people share their identity and then providing space for that. Someone says it's very scary and I just want to make sure I'm getting things right. I want to make sure I'm helping, not hurting. You are just by thinking of that. So the, the hurtful comments come out when you don't think about those things, right? And so when I talk to patients that have parents that are not supportive, it's that they can't even have, they, th they don't even see their parents thinking about it, <laughs> not even trying, right? And so trying and then learning and then as Brene, Brena, as Brene Brown says, um, having those courageous conversations, that, that is the learning and that's how you provide support. And then you change and you're like, oh, that wasn't helpful. Okay, what can I do differently? Um, but just creating space for that conversation is helpful. And the fact that you're even thinking about how to do it in a way that is empathetic and that is caring, you're already doing it. 